Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. We start with the plan to replace the Royal BC Museum, tear it down, build a new one, one billion bucks. Let's check in with Todd Stone, Liberal MLA, one of the lead opposition critics on this file. Todd, thanks for coming on today. Uh, thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, let me, uh, this was quite a firestorm yesterday in the BC legislature over this project. Let me play a clip here from your party leader, Kevin Falcon, in the legislature yesterday going after the government. We'll get your thoughts. If this premier is so stubbornly wanting to go ahead with one of the dumbest capital decisions I've seen since they canceled the 10 lane, the 10 lane Massey Bridge that would have been opening this summer, if they want to stubbornly go ahead with this, then British Columbians deserve to see a full and unredacted business case. Yeah, I think that's about the least we could expect is a business plan for this project. Todd Stone, your thoughts? Well, I, I absolutely. It's a billion dollars. And, it, and it, we've confirmed that uh, this is the largest uh, museum project in Canadian history. Uh, wow. you know, we, we, we scoured the, the whole country and there's nothing that's come, uh, anywhere close to, to this dollar value. Uh, you know, we, we've also uh, obtained a, a document from, uh, the Royal BC Museum. Uh, it's called Treasures for Generations. It, it was a proposal provided to government a couple of years ago and uh, it speaks of a, of a bold vision, uh, for a $150 million upgrade of the yeah. museum. Uh, and get this. Uh, the, the 150 million would be spent over a 25-year period. Uh, that was oh. just two years ago. Uh, we, we've also learned that the government uh, spent uh, 4.29 million dollars to purchase the IMAX theater just two years ago. And as 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 you know, it was only months ago that they were talking about uh, a substantial uh, upgrade to the Old Town exhibit uh, that uh, was going to begin in, in the museum as part of a refurbishment of the existing building. And then you fast forward a few months later, and here we are. Uh, somehow this, this, this needs to be a complete and total teardown uh, and a $1 billion project uh, with very little details to, to explain how we actually arrived here. Yeah, no, and a lot of people are asking, oh boy, that's a lot of good detail there, and a lot of people are asking questions about at least show me a plan, like how is this going to work? All you've told me is what it's going to cost. Like, show me the business case for this. Melanie Mark, the minister responsible here, in the legislature getting grilled on that let me play a clip here for you from her yesterday saying hang on wait for it we'll, we'll show you the plan here here's melanie mark yesterday so yesterday the media did request uh, for the business case we've heard it in the media today that government is working on it my team are working around no, with, all, with all due respect we are we're working on getting if you let me finish handing Members. over the material as quickly as by the end of this week Okay, so they're working on it to release a, a business case for this, and it could be out by the end of the week. Todd Stone, your thoughts? Well, uh, so, so uh, the premier makes this billion-dollar uh, announcement last uh, last Friday. No business case uh, was released. Uh, there's obviously no renderings, no pictures, no no architect has been uh, has been talked about. There's no RFP documents. There's no details. Even yesterday, uh, in estimates, uh, finance estimates, the finance minister she couldn't even speak to. 
uh, what the what the square footage of a new building would look like. Like to even give some order of magnitude as to to, to what this building will actually uh, look like and the footprint it will have. <laughs> and 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 we're sitting there just saying like, uh, I, how is how is how is this possible? Uh, when, when, when you're talking about the expenditure of a billion dollars, uh, we, we, we did confirm yesterday from the finance minister that, uh, that she approved a, a treasury board, a, a business plan or a business case for this back in, uh, last March. So oh. uh, for them to be saying now, oh, we're working on it, we'll get to the details, we'll get it out this week. It better not be Friday before a long weekend when the legislature has risen uh, for, uh, for, for a week. Uh, if they actually approved this at Treasury Board, and I'll take the finance minister's word on that, last March, then release the business plan today. Uh, put it out there yeah. for all British climates, unredacted, uh, the full unredacted business plan. Put it out there. If you're so damn proud of this project and it's the right thing to do for British Columbians, put out the details uh, that, as to, as to uh, you know, what, what underpins this uh, one of the largest uh, capital expenditures uh, that we've seen in this province in a long yeah, time. Yeah, I, I think they're desperately trying to come up with something to put in front of the public here, and I think that was reflected in the comment we just played from Cabinet Minister Melanie Mark saying we're working on it. <laughs> we're working well, on well, it I, now I, as I, fast I kinda, as we I, can. You know, I, I kind of half, uh, you know, half serious, half jokingly say this, but you almost have this picture of a, of, of a few bureaucrats, you know, uh, it's closeted away in a room somewhere, just frantically trying to come up with a business plan. You know, pull together all the all the, the papers uh, for for some kind of business plan. Um, I think that they actually have done some costing. How do you come out with a specific number like the premier yeah. did on Friday last week? It wasn't like it, uh, he didn't say it was seven hundred million. He didn't say it was eight hundred million. He said it was a, you know specific uh, you know seven hundred eighty million or whatever it was. Seven hundred eighty nine million. Seven hundred and eighty-nine million. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's pretty darn specific, right? So, right. you know, at the very least, just be upfront and honest with with the public about uh, how you arrived at this decision and what it what it's going to, uh, you know, what the details are. What were the options that you looked at? You know, we're hearing from all kinds of people inside of the museum that you know are are, are quietly, obviously, they they you know they're doing this very carefully, uh, but they're they're telling us. This this museum is only fifty. It's only fifty four years old. It doesn't need to right. be torn down. There's nothing wrong with the with the with the envelope of this building. And you know, Mike, the other the other piece that, that we don't want to get lost in all this. This is a signature tourism uh, destination uh, uh, here in, in Greater Victoria. Um, you, you, cruise ships are finally arriving again. Tourists are pouring into to Victoria. And what you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna rush a teardown of this building, uh, close it this coming September, and then, and then close it down for, uh, for, for eight years to have a, yeah. have a big hole in downtown Victoria. Uh, I, I mean, it just, none of this makes sense. No. No, it really does. I don't understand the time frame at all. I'm speaking to Liberal MLA Todd Stone. Let me play another clip here for you from the Culture Minister Melanie Mark. This is her file. Here she is defending this plan to tear down the existing museum, build a new one for a billion bucks. It'll take eight years to do. Here's here's she is explaining why they're doing this. We need to protect our province's asset. Across the street from this legislative chamber is our shared history, Honourable Speaker, and our government is not going to take the risk through an earthquake, through floods, to wipe out our collective history. Okay, so she's saying that the existing museum is vulnerable to an earthquake, vulnerable to flooding, and they are not going to risk the province's collective history and culture. They've got to do that. They've got to build this new museum. They're already building a quarter of a billion dollar building, a separate building, over in Colwitz in the yeah. Premier's riding, which is intended 
to be the location of, of all of these sensitive records and, and uh, you know, archival information. And, and, and there will be some collections and, and, and other pieces that will be stored over there. You know, it's, a, it's besides in a properly uh, built seismic, uh, seismically safe building with the, with the right HVAC and all that stuff. But then that's important. Like, I think all British Columbians out there listening would be not in their head saying, you know, should we be preserving um, uh, our, our history for future generations? Absolutely. Of course. The, the yeah. point here is like you could do it for, you know, maybe, maybe the total cost of this, of this upgrade of the existing museum. Maybe it's a $150 million, $200 million project. You keep the current envelope, uh, the current footprint to the building, and and you 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 upgrade the in, the interior. I mean, maybe right. that that makes sense. But you know, on the seismic piece, we've got two hundred schools still in this province that haven't been seismically upgraded. Yeah. You, you, how, how about some hospitals? Dollars, how about some hospitals that need to be seismically upgraded and emergency rooms? Well, a hundred uh, one billion dollars would would yeah. would enable the government to seismically upgrade a hundred schools, yeah. right, uh, and a whole bunch of hospitals. So you know, this is this is really about uh, a question of priorities, right? It's uh, uh, you know at a time when people are having trouble putting gas in their tanks and put food on their table and afford their rent, and a time when you can't get a doctor, one in five can't get a family doctor. We've right. got all these schools that need to be seismically upgraded. Uh, you know, the nursing shortages everywhere. Uh, the government is consciously choosing to 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 spend uh, a billion dollars on a museum uh, that uh, brand new museum that that nobody's really asking for. Um, yeah. you know, do do a modest upgrade of the existing building. Fair enough, uh, but a billion dollars is this is just completely, uh, frankly, it's wacky. It's it's out of uh, uh, it's out of control. Liberal MLA Todd Stone, thank you for your time today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Have a good day. All right, welcome back to the show. And here we go now with the traffic jams on Mount Everest, the highest mountain in the world. Have you seen some of those famous photos of those mountain climbers all desperately trying to reach the summit? They are lined up in like a massive crowd of mountaineers all trying to get to the top at the same time. And it's a dangerous situation. There are calls now to limit uh, the numbers on the famous mountain. I've got mountain climber Jim Davidson standing by he was climbing everest back in 2015 when a deadly earthquake hit the mountain he'll share that story with you first have a listen to this report here now from nbc news it's the traffic jam atop the world an image now emblematic of a deadly new normal droves of climbers waiting for their chance to summit mount everest at 29,000 feet, long lines can mean mountaineers are trapped for too long in an area often called the death zone. This season, there are a record number of people pushing to summit, most nowhere near as experienced. It's really an economic equation. Um, you know, Nepal has monetized Mount Everest. The Nepalese government is now under fire for issuing more than 380 permits to foreign climbers, all required to have a guide or Sherpa. All right, that report there from NBC News. Let's discuss now with my guest, Jim Davidson. Jim is a mountain climber. He is the author of the terrific book, The Next Everest, Surviving the Mountain's Deadliest Day and Finding the Resilience to Climb Again. He was on the mountain back in 2015 when that deadly earthquake hit. Jim, it's nice to have you on again. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Mike. It's great to join you again. Hey, Jim, just before we talk about your your hair-raising adventures and stories on the, on the mountain, let me ask you your thoughts on this situation on Mount Everest and a lot of people talking about this again 
with the traffic jams we're seeing on the mountain, there are calls to limit the numbers of people going up. You know, we hear lots of people, lots of stories about people who just don't have the skills to do this, and yet they're they're going up this mountain. What do you think about that? Well, it is a scary situation when you talk about standing in a queue at uh, twenty nine thousand feet or uh, over eight thousand meters. Um, it is a real problem, but it gets way overplayed in in some of the clips that you just had because. It really depends upon how many good weather days we get. If we get many good weather days towards the summit season, we don't have those kind of cues. But if we don't have enough weather days like we did in 2019, we can form those cues. So they, they come some years, but not every year. Okay, so the lineups happen when you've got bad weather and there's like a narrow weather window and everyone goes runs to the top at the same time, right? Exactly, Mike. Like yeah. in 2019, where everyone's seen that famous photo of literally hundreds of climbers in a line, that year, there was only three summit days. So basically, wow. everybody went at once. It's almost like if they only opened your favorite beach for three days during the summer, you and I and everyone else would all go at the same time. But this year, we've had great weather, and there really hasn't been much of a line or much of a queue problem at all. Okay. You've heard in that report there from NBC News some criticism of the government of Nepal. You heard one critic there saying that Nepal has monetized this, that they're looking to just make more money. So they're maybe letting too many people go up the mountain. Do you think that's the case? Well, there are an awful lot of permits, and the crowding does create problems. If I heard correctly, I think that was actually my good friend, Alan Arnett, who I climb with down in the States here. Oh, yeah. um, and Alan's right. I mean, they really do sell a lot of permits. It's $11,000 per person, U.S. dollars, for a permit. And so as a result, the government makes a lot of money, so the government's not going to put brakes on it. I think it's up to the, the expedition groups, and people to try and spread themselves out and reduce the numbers. But the problem is, it's an incredible, dramatic, and beautiful place. A lot of people want to go yeah. there. Yeah, and do you think that some of the people who do travel to Mount Everest to try this are maybe underqualified to do that? I mean, we've heard stories about people who are saying, you know, some rich person who thinks like, well, I can do this, it's a bucket list item, I'm going to go climb Mount Everest, and maybe they just don't have the skill or the experience to take on a mountain like that. Again, it's kind of like the crowding. It, it, it is real and it is a problem. Yes, I saw some people there. I'd been a climber for about 35 years when I summited Mount Everest. And I was glad to have that experience to know how to take care of myself, my teammates, and have respect for the mountain and the environment. I saw some people there that weren't as qualified. Um, I wish there were greater qualification standards. And Nepal could do that by requiring people to climb other 6,000 meter peaks or 8,000 meter peaks before they can get an Everest permit. So I think, again, it's a little overstated in the media sometimes, but yes, there are some people there that probably should be practicing on other smaller mountains before yeah. they get to Everest. Yeah. What is, the, um, what is considered the best time of year to climb Everest? It's almost always in the spring. People will go to the mountain in late March or early April, and everybody's looking to summit at about the same time in early to mid-May. Sometimes as early as May 5th. Most of the time, it's between about May 10th and May 25th, and the reason for that is big storms come out of India called um, monsoons, and they push the jet stream and thus the winds off the summit of Everest. And so right about that mid-May time, that's when yeah. everybody summits. Yeah, so that's right now, right? So there's probably people on the mountain heading to the summit right now as we speak, do you think? There should be, yeah. It's probably just yeah. a few right now. Normally we'd be exactly at the peak right now, but this year, like I said, the weather was so good, the, the peak uh, happened early, and it's been spread out. So I think we're on our eighth or ninth day with people summiting. And so now there's probably only a minority of people, but this is an unusual year. We're about two weeks ahead of, of, of schedule on this year. 
I'm speaking to Jim Davidson, author of the book, The Next Everest, Surviving the Mountain's Deadliest Day. Okay, Jim, let's go back in time here to April 25th, 2015. That's the day that 7.8 magnitude earthquake hit Mount Everest. Man, what a deadly day. It was almost 9,000 people were killed in Nepal uh, because of this uh, deadly earthquake. Where were you on, on the mountain that day when the earthquake yeah, it hit? Was, it was a terrible day, and I was sitting in a tent at Camp 1, which is just a little bit below 6,000 meters, camped on a glacier with huge walls on each side of us, 1,000 meters on one side, 2,000 vertical meters on the other side, and uh, we were right at the base of those walls, and when the, the glacier started to tremble, those walls let loose, let loose with huge powder blast avalanches and came right at us at Camp 1. It was absolutely terrifying. Wow, okay, that ice fall, I'm just an, an amateur fan of Mount Everest. I love watching films on it and stuff, but is that like the Kumbu Ice Fall? Is that the area? Correct. We were just above the Kumbu Ice Fall. Uh, yeah. The Kumbu Ice Fall is the steep section where all those ice blocks are moving and shifting and falling down. And we were camped just above it on, on sort of a flat plateau of the glacier. And that's where we were when the earthquake hit on April 25th, 2015. Yeah. It was terrifying because we the, literally the glacier was rippling with waves, like as if you were on a life raft in the ocean. We're getting picked up and down and up and down, and those avalanches were coming at us. But amazingly, nobody got killed in Camp 1 where I was or Camp 2 above us. But unfortunately, in base camp, they had a different avalanche with a lot of wind and rocks, and it made uh, a big wave of rocks that went through the middle third of base camp and sadly killed 18 people making it the deadliest day ever on Mount Everest. All right, welcome back to my discussion with Jim Davidson. His book is The Next Everest, Surviving the Mountain's Deadliest Day. And as you heard Jim describe before the break, he was on the mountain back in 2015 when that deadly earthquake hit. Great book. I highly recommend it to you. Uh, it's a It's a finalist for the Colorado Book Award. Jim lives in Colorado. It's available on Amazon, and it's it's on sale on Kindle. So, Jim, I was just checking on uh, on the Amazon site, two ninety nine in Canada for the uh, Kindle edition of the book. It's a pretty good deal. Yeah, it's kind of special this month because Everest uh, is, as we were talking, May is Everest Summiting Month. So, uh, Kindle and Amazon and my publisher got together and made it a special deal. It's about eighty percent off, so it's a good deal as I've ever seen on it. So, that's a great thing for your readers to know about and your listeners. Okay, that's pretty cool. All right, Jim, let's continue talking about the earthquake, the day the earthquake hit. Now, you mentioned before the break that the Kumbu Icefall, that's the icefall where the guys guys go over those uh, those crevasses on a like a ladder. Like you walk over a ladder, right, over those ice pits. Did you do that? Oh, oh yeah. You have to do that dozens of, to uh, dozens of times for each trip you go through the icefall. And we have to go up and down through the icefall about six or eight times, depending upon your trip more so for the Sherpas that work there, and you have to go over dozens of those ladders, and it is as scary as it looks on the video. The ladders may tilt, and they bounce, and you're actually just stepping on the rungs. And so when I go across, I try to say to myself, focus on the rungs, not the drop, because you are surrounded <laughs> by a drop of 30, 40 meters inside those glacial cracks, and it's really scary. Yikes. Okay, so you, you made your way over those. So you'd already passed over those when the earthquake hit. Is that correct? Correct. We were just above knew how bad the Kumbu Icefall was because we just come through it hours before. So when we were stuck at Camp 1 at 6,000 meters roughly, we knew that our route back down through the icefall had to have been wrecked by the earthquake. 
And indeed it was. We sent some people down to look and the ladders were gone and the ropes were gone. So we were marooned to Camp One trying to figure out how the heck we were going to get off the mountain. Yeah. Did you guys know the extent of the earthquake? I mean, obviously, did you immediately recognize it was an earthquake or did, I guess, avalanches can happen at any time on Everest, but did you know this was a big quake? Good question. At first, we thought it was a single avalanche, but then when we heard a second avalanche coming from the other direction, we knew something was up and then the ground started jumping up and down about nine inches, lifting this entire glacier, uh, you know, four kilometers long and a kilometer and a half wide. The whole glacier is going up and down. I'm a geologist. Everybody else figured out, too, it was an earthquake. But how bad it was around Nepal? No, that took several hours to get to us. We heard some calls from base camp that had been a disaster. We had satellite phones and some of us had GPS uh, texting devices. And very slowly over hours, we began to realize it wasn't just a disaster on Everest. It was a disaster for all of Nepal, like you said earlier. Yeah. And how did you get out of there? Obviously, you, you were rescued. How did you get off the mountain? Yeah, we wanted to rebuild the route so we could get down to base camp and help out where the mass casualty incident was, but we were stuck for about two days. They used the few available helicopters to move about 70 wounded people out of base camp. And as I described in my book, The Next Everest, they got those people down off the mountain uh, from base camp. And then the next day, 48 hours after the quake, they used those helicopters to evacuate approximately 180 of us from camps one and two to get us down to base camp. And as I described in the book, I was so glad to get off the glacier and be at base camp but immediately we found ourselves in the middle of a mass casualty incident. So I got involved with trying to recover some bodies and trying to dig through and recover some medical supplies from a medical tent that had been overrun. It was a real disaster on the mountain and a real disaster for Nepal. Oh, man. What, what was that like when you got back to base camp? You saw that tragedy in front of you. Well, it was just terrifying to know that people had lost their lives and the Sherpas that we work with, many of them had lost their homes and they were worried about their families. So a lot of the Sherpas uh, left with the of course, with everybody's buying, you know, yes, go home and take care of your family. But nobody on our team was hurt. So when we descended the valley, we stopped to try and help disassemble houses and save the materials for those Sherpa families so they could rebuild. We passed the hat to raise some money there. And more importantly, when we got home, we did a lot of fundraising for months and months to try and help Nepal rebuild. Uh, Nepal's a poor country, but it's a beautiful country. And they've rebuilt pretty good from the quake, but they still need help today. And that's why I was still doing a, a fundraiser just last week to keep raising money for Nepal to help do their rebuilding. Hey, Jim, the title of your book is Surviving the Mountain's Deadliest Day, Finding the Resilience to Climb Again. Let's talk a little bit about that. Like after you survived this experience on Everest, what was that like, uh, like psychologically and emotionally for you? Did you find it tough to go back to the mountain? Yeah, it was scary to even contemplate going back. I didn't know if I wanted to or not. I understood as a geologist there'll be more earthquakes in the future. That's why the Himalayas are there. Um, but I had the desire to go back to climb the mountain. I knew my Sherpa friends in Nepal needed uh, tourism, including mountain climbing, to keep employed. They really depend upon that income. So I was torn. And as I describe in the book, it was a long, slow struggle for me before I decided that I did want to go back. Because I've learned through the years that, you know, when you go through a tough incident, that makes you more resilient for going through the next tough situation. I'm a full-time speaker as well. What I talk about is post-traumatic growth that from traumatic things, it is terrible, but you can learn how to grow and hopefully become a better version of you. And that's been part of my journey in the mountains is to try and refine myself into a better version of me. So I decided to go back and try climbing Mount Everest all over again. Okay, and you did that in 2017, right? Cor correct, yep. Managed to reach the summit on a beautiful day. Oh, okay, tell me what that was like to get to, get to the top. Well, it was magical. I was climbing with the same Sherpa that I'd been with before, PK Sherpa from the town of Portsea. And we had been working so hard. I think the day we summited was about day 61 of the expedition because we had a lot of bad weather. 
Um, and so 61 days on the mountain and 35 years as a climber, uh, you know, it was magical to be there, but it certainly was not any conquering moment because nobody can conquer a mountain. I felt very, very, very small, but the view is unbelievable. You're walking along this ridge of darkness, then the sun starts to come up, and you can see these 2,000 to 3,000 meter drops on both sides of you, and you're walking this little narrow ridge that's less than a meter across, and it was truly magical, but I felt very small and very humbled and thankful to be able to reach the top. Yeah, and was there a lineup to get to the summit? No, uh, on my trip in 2017, on summit day, we had a five-minute wait here and maybe a single 20-minute wait there. If you add it all together, we might have spent maybe one hour waiting over the course of an eight- or nine-hour climb. So it wasn't too bad. When I was on the summit, I'd say there were about uh, about eight people there when I got there and maybe about 20 when I turned around and left at about 5 o'clock in the morning. What's that uh, that final push like? They call it Hillary's Step, right? Is that sort of the final place where you climb and there's a, a, usually a bunch of ropes that are there left by other mountaineers and you pick one of those ropes is that what you do pretty much yeah the hillary step has been the, the last hurdle to clear on your summit day uh since the quake happened in 2015 the hillary step has collapsed and fallen down and as i described in my book the next Everest, i looked around for it as a geologist when i got up there and i did not see any signs of it so it fell off probably into the nepal side so now they call it the hillary slope maybe not as glamorous a name but yes, there are ropes there attached to the mountain every spring uh, by the first team that goes up, and we all clip into them for safety. And so we're clipped in most of the time, but you still get that uh, 2,000 to 3,000 meter drop below you. It's uh, pretty uh, pretty exhilarating. I uh, just got a minute left here, Jim. Are you still climbing? I am. I, I live in Colorado and climb in the Rockies, and I go up to Canada every once in a while and do some climbing and hiking up there. So I still climb, and I think I will for years to come until I'm perhaps too old to get down the trail, but there's always adventures to be had. And there's always a, a next mountain ahead or a next Everest in our lives. So I'm going to keep going to the mountains. Jim, thank you for your time today. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I appreciate it. Great talking to you. Take care. All right. Welcome back. Let's talk about speed enforcement in Metro Vancouver. Now, if you are behind the wheel of your vehicle right now, you're thinking of putting your foot down. Be careful. The cops are looking for you. They are stepping up their speed enforcement. They say they have lots of new technology to catch speeders in the act, hit you with a big fine. Have a listen to this ad from local police departments. This is what I'm talking about. Time savers, busy bees, running late rushers, occasional racers and impatient light chasers. We see you. Empty road? Not a pedestrian in sight? Just a few minutes from being on time? We see you. Because your lead-footed antics aren't a match for our tactics. More tools, more speed checks, more chances to catch you in the act. Think you won't get caught? It's only a matter of time before we see you. Brought to you by your local police. Yeah, we see you. We see you with your lead foot antics there. Don't even think about it. The cops are going to catch you. Let's discuss this now with my guest, Kyla Lee, criminal defense lawyer at Acumen Law. And I'm always pleased to welcome her back to the show. Hi, Kyla. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot for coming on. When you hear that ad, police promising a crackdown on speeding, I mean, are, aren't they always going after speeders or do sometimes they put more resources into catching speeders? Of course 
they're always going after speeders, but there are times where they put more resources into catching them. And right now, the the transition out of the, the cold part of the year and into the sunnier and warm part of the year is the best time to catch speeders. It is uh, also when we see less traffic on the roads as people go on summer holidays, universities let out, and so people aren't commuting to school as much. And that gives people more opportunities to speed because the roads are emptier, which means it's better for police to do their speed enforcement because they can catch more people. Okay, so there's more people speeding, so it's the best time for the cops to go out and catch the speeders. Now, you heard in that ad that we just played that police say, we have new tools, we have the technology now to catch you. What kind of tools have they added to their arsenal? Um, none that I'm aware of. It's the oh. usual, you know, things that they uh, that they have. They've got um, the laser and radar speed enforcement devices. We, of course, have speed cameras that have been installed in several locations uh, in BC. Um, they do have um, better spotting scopes that can allow them to estimate your speed or catch you using an electronic device from a further distance. Um, and they're ramping up training of police. So they have a lot more police officers who've actually received the training to do the enforcement than they did before the pandemic. Right. And so they also talk there in that ad about more speed checks. So is is that like a like a speed check? Is that like a where the police set up with a radar? Exactly, where they're set up at the side of the road with a radar. Uh, sometimes they'll be in a place you don't see them. They'll be on the opposite side of the road, and there'll be officers that they get radioed ahead to pull you over. So you don't even see the police uh, measuring your speed. You're pulled over a few blocks later and issued the ticket. And that way, people can get caught without being tipped off to the presence of the police. Okay, how much is a speeding ticket right now? Depends on how fast you're going, right? It does. It depends on how fast you're going. So uh, one kilometer an hour over the speed limit, up to 20 kilometers an hour over the speed limit, $138, three points. 21 kilometers uh, to 40 kilometers over the speed limit, $196, three points. And uh, 41 kilometers up to uh, 59 kilometers over the speed limit uh, is 368. And then above that, it's 486. Okay, so this can really start to add up. But that's just the start, right? Do you get penalty points too? Yes, there's three points for all speeding tickets, except for the camera tickets, which don't give you any points. And for excessive speeding tickets, so anything 40 uh, kilometers an hour over the speed limit and up, there's also the driver risk premium associated, which is $340 a year for three years. Okay, so that can wallop you on your ICBC. What about, uh, can police seize your vehicle? They can. If you are caught excessive speeding, it's a mandatory seven-day impound the first time, 30 days the second time. Okay, I know that police are also using some new high-tech tools to catch distracted drivers. So I, I remember a uh, a police officer showing me, say hello to my little friend here, the Laser Technology True Speed SXB Super Scope with Bluetooth compatibility. And these are American-made tools. Basically, it's like a a real high-tech speed camera. And you can take a photo of a driver from 610 meters away and then alert another officer down the highway to stop you. So now you've got the evidence. You've got a high-resolution photograph of a law-breaking driver. And then the officer can then, another officer can then stop you down the road. Like when the police have evidence like that, is that tough to beat in court? Um, not necessarily. If it's being used for speed enforcement, um, there is a problem. There's a police train that they have to have something known as a tracking history, 
which is essentially their own observations of the vehicle and the movement of the vehicle to corroborate what's captured on a camera because technology can fail. So you want that fail safe of also witnessing it with your own eyes. When it comes to distracted driving, obviously a photo of you with your phone in your hand behind the wheel is pretty darn good evidence. (laughs) Yeah. Now, how about a speeding ticket? So if you get stopped for speeding ticket, a police officer says, I clocked you on radar going over the limit. I'm writing you a ticket. Is that, can you just expand a little bit about on that, Kyla, in in terms of disputing a ticket like that? Because it just seems to me that if you get rung up for speeding, I don't know, don't they got you red handed? It's difficult to fight it or can you fight it? You can absolutely fight it. Um, If you're issued a ticket, you have 30 days from the date that you receive it uh, to dispute it and a hearing date gets scheduled in court. At court, the officer has to prove that you were speeding, and uh, they also have to prove sort of the rate of speed that you were going for the fine amount to apply. Um, The officer will have to provide evidence of their observations of your vehicle, your identification, um, how they determined your speed. And if they were using something like laser or radar, there are certain requirements for what evidence they have to give about how those devices are operated in order for them to be considered reliable and admissible evidence in court. Okay, how about if you get a ticket at at an intersection safety camera and there are 140 cameras set up around British Columbia, 26 different communities, according to ICBC, and these are the cameras that can, I guess they can do two things, right? They can catch you running a red light, but they can also catch you speeding through an intersection, correct? Yes, and not all red light cameras have the speed uh, capabilities. Um, so there's different uh, different um, technology at different intersections, but you can see a map and there's also signs posted in front of any intersection which has a camera to tell you what they do. Yeah, they warn you. At least you get a warning that the camera's there, right? Yes, you get a warning that the camera's there, so you really have no excuse. Um, disputing a red light camera or a speed camera ticket is very difficult. We haven't seen a lot of success in those cases. Most of the time, the successful decisions have been involving people who were capable of raising a reasonable doubt that they were going as fast as the camera measured them as going and then got a lower fine as a result. Who gets the fine, though? Is it the owner of the vehicle or the driver? Yes, the ticket is issued to the owner of the vehicle, so even if you're not driving it. (laughs) But you don't get any points, and nothing goes on your driving record. So, you know, there is a trade-off for that. Okay, but that's kind of like, what if someone else is driving your vehicle? And, and, you know, how is that fair to you if if you're the owner of the vehicle, but someone else is driving, you get rung up with the ticket? The Motor Vehicle Act makes you responsible as the owner of a vehicle for anything done with your vehicle, and you're required to exercise good judgment and care when entrusting your vehicle to another person. So if you're going to let someone else drive your vehicle, make sure that they're not a person who's going to speed or run a red light in it. All right, welcome back. We're talking speeding, speed traps, photo radar, distracted driving. My guest is Kyla Lee. Phone lines are open 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Brian in Richmond. Hi, Brian. Go ahead. Yeah, I just had a question. I had a, I don't know what I would call it, but a police officer pulled me over six weeks ago and gave me what I'm learning is a now called by the police uh, scratch and save no scratch and win so <clears throat> pulls me over tells me i broke three you know infractions um yeah. writes me up eventually for one and gives me a, a two written um warnings okay 
So there, hence the scratch and win, I guess. He gives you three and you only pay for one. But I explained to the officer that the reason some of those things happened, he was driving an um, unmarked Ford F-150 truck, um, and he was tailgating the crap out of me. So I was, he said, you went through stop signs without coming to a full stop. True, I did, because he was all over me, like I've never been tailgated before. Hmm. Um, so I was trying, and I had my 12-year-old in the car. So I was trying to kind of create a distance between us for some safety. Uh, anyway, long story, but, uh, I'm just wondering, I, I assume that when he gave me the one ticket with the two written warnings that if I go to court, yeah, those two written warnings could become tickets again, if you know what I mean. And Wh- I which I one, been... which offense did he write you the ticket for speeding? No. So he, he wrote me one, the, the offense he actually wrote me out for was. Um, I believe it was not indicating when I turned. Okay, Kyla, your thoughts. Well, first of all, if you are given a warning and not an actual ticket, um, disputing the one ticket that you got cannot convert the warnings into tickets. So you don't need to worry about that if you do want to dispute the turn signal ticket that you got. Um, and you may have a defense in a situation like that if you were charged with the you know failing to stop at a stop sign if you felt that it was necessary to avoid an imminent collision, that you not stop at the stop sign, that's what's known as necessity, where the harm that's avoided by you taking an unlawful act is uh, greater than the harm that you cause by committing that act. Oh, okay. So what do you got to hope there? The judge is, the judge is understanding to you when, you when you say that? Well, it's an affirmative defense, so you would have to establish the evidence necessary to make out that there was an imminent risk of peril, uh, that you had no reasonable legal alternative, and uh, that the harm avoided was less than the harm that was caused by you running a stop sign or the red light. Okay, interesting. Larry in Coquitlam on the line. Hi, Larry, go ahead. Yes, I um, I actually had a situation where that uh, it was on the highway. Uh, it was in... Uh, Port Coquitlam area on uh, Westwood and uh, Lowheed, right. and an officer came out of the bushes from the side of the road, and at the red light he was walking through traffic, and I had my cell phone on the charger oh. in the passenger seat to, beside me, and uh, he knocks on the window and he says, "You're on the phone, pull over," and we went in the parking lot and he uh, wrote me a ticket for being on the cell phone. He says, "I wasn't on the phone." And uh, he said, oh, yeah, I saw you. And I said, well, I wasn't on the phone, and I'm going to go to court. He says, yeah, okay, I'll see you in court. And he wrote a whole bunch of notes. I went to court, and he had a whole bunch of notes about a bunch of lies, and I couldn't defend myself. He, and I couldn't even uh, actually speak to the officer. So you, lo- did you, lose, so you lost in court, did you? I did, and the thing okay. is, you see... Uh, okay, Kyla, let me go to Kyla. Just the in, the, in the interest of time, Kyla, your thoughts. Well, it is the case often that people are, they have their phone in the vehicle. The police officers think they see them using their phone, but they might be handling something else in the car. And they pull them over, they see the phone, and they conclude that must be what they saw. It's something that we hear a lot, and those are very difficult tickets to defend because it's your word, essentially, against the officers, and it comes down to credibility. What about an officer hiding in the bushes and then coming out at a red light to ticket you for distracted driving? Is I, I'm sure you've heard of that before, too, right? I see that all the time. I find it very time. frustrating because it's not targeting the people who are the most dangerous and posing the greatest risk on the road. Yeah, Ron in Abbotsford. Hi, Ron. Go ahead. 
Yeah, uh, when they first installed these uh, uh, red light cameras, they said they were doing it for safety and at uh, accident-prone intersections. Well, I would like to know how many of these cameras are at uh, intersections where the speed limit changes. Because uh, the Pit Meadow Bridge, you're coming over the Pit Meadow Bridge, you're, you're allowed to go 50 miles an hour, and then all of a sudden it's down to 30 at that intersection. But but the, I found out that the intersection doesn't have a lot of accidents. So they okay. threw it in there for a money grab, I think. And I'd like Kyla. to know how many of those intersections are like that. Kyla, do you know? I couldn't give you an exact number, but it is very common to see speed enforcement right in areas where the speed limit changes from, you know, 70 down to 50, from 80 to 50, from 50 to 30. Uh, those are common sort of fishing holes for the police to stop speeders. Ken in Kelowna. Hi, Ken. Go ahead. I just have a, a question. I'm, I'm assuming that the distracted driving is aiming at um, people talking on their cell phones. But I'm just wondering, Kayla, what about people that are driving, eating hamburgers, having coffee, and, um, you know, things like that? I mean, is that not considered distracting driving as well? Kayla. It doesn't fall under our distracted driving laws, but there are rules in the Motor Vehicle Act that say that you can't have anything obstructing your ability to control the vehicle. So having something in your hand while driving technically could violate that law. And there's also rules about driving without due care and attention. So if you're distracted by your coffee or your burger or your eating or your makeup or whatever, uh, that would violate the law as well. Timothy and Coquitlam. Timothy, you got 30 seconds here. Okay, go ahead. Okay, first of all, my wife works in film, so she leaves quite early. That accident that happened this morning is totally unavoidable. Where people are speeding, it was uh, in Burnaby there, seven car pileup, wow. etc. It was, it's, it's raining. Slow down. Um, uh, how do you quickly get um, speed signs put up in your area? Uh, who do you contact to get it done the quickest? Depending on where it is, you would contact either your municipality or the provincial government. If it's uh, within municipal bounds, uh, you want to contact the municipality. Uh, If it's on a highway, you want to contact the provincial government. Okay, Kyla, it's always great to have you on here. You're always a super popular guest. We couldn't get to everybody. What's your website if people want to get in touch with you? People can find me at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or KylaLee.ca.